Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for March 23rd, 2020. Recording live from our studios in Spencerport, New York. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, and BHG Funding. For more information on our sponsors, please visit our website. This is Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Educational Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining us from Studio One, Studio One is John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory healthcare industry. Joining us from Studio Two is Sue Concrete, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, and along with her is Rosie Cronkite Gailey, Director of Therapeutic Services from AHS. Joining us remotely from Rochester, New York, is Jenna Alvarez, our Senior Nurse Consultant, Alex Bornman, Director of Operations with AHS. And from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Lori Rodriguez, Director of Clinical Services for AHS. From Atlanta, Georgia, we have Zach Caloritas, Financial Consultant with AHS. From West Palm Beach, Florida, Ann Geyer, Chief Nursing Assistant with SIS. And our special guest from Syracuse, Laura Spring Esquire. I uh, I would like to thank everybody for joining us today. I hope you had a good weekend as best you can. Um, As you probably know, it's been a very eventful weekend. Uh, One of the uh, the things that uh, that uh, we we have some joy (laughs) in our lives, and uh, I would like to introduce the new director of therapeutic services for ambulatory healthcare strategies. She is with Sue. And yes, she is a, a four-legged dog. I know for all of you that are on the podcast that cannot see, we have this beautiful little eight-week-old puppy. She's a golden retriever, uh, cream-colored golden retriever. So you might, if you didn't join us on YouTube, you can certainly come back um, and uh, see the video afterwards. But uh, she's brought a lot of go- joy to our life, and she is a little mischievous, but she's also been a very good puppy. So Director of Therapeutic Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought I would just bring some joy to our our lives here. I know that uh, there's a lot going on, and uh, uh, sometimes it's nice to uh, to see something uh, different. So I'm going to change the feed here. So it has uh, been uh, uh, quite an interesting weekend, and I just want to start by uh, just talking a little bit about what happened in New York. And a number of people have said it doesn't matter. I mean, we have people from other states that have just uh, noted that New York tends to be kind of leading the way. Um, with regard to what's going on. So unfortunately, over the weekend in New York, some guidance came out from the New York governor's office that defined essential services. Uh, this, uh, and unfortunately, this went out, um, what happened is when this guidance came out, it did not include ambulatory surgery centers. We hope that this was an oversight, but in light of it, we are recommending to all of our centers to file an exception. And we did provide information this morning on our website um, as to what the um, uh, what the step was for doing this. Uh, we are advising those centers that uh, um, th- that we that uh, believe that they're under a shutdown order to continue services if they so wish, uh, but uh, but to file this exception just to be sure. Um, so there's a lot going on in many of the states, and many of the states that we work in, uh, unfortunately, are uh, indeed um, starting to require that uh, ambulatory surgery centers. Uh, um, stop doing uh, non-elective procedures. Alex, do you want to give an update on uh, what's going on across the, the, at least with the most uh, uh, common states that we have? Absolutely. So we're going to start with California. Um, 
which as far as we've seen has not released guidance um, specific to elective procedures. Um, but however, they have released guidance um, having to do with which workers um, in different industries should be reporting to work. And among those are workers in other medical facilities, including health or ambulatory health and surgical. Um, that's the way they put it in their release. Um, Florida has determined that ASCs are prohibited from providing any medically unnecessary, non-urgent or non-emergency procedures or surgery, which if delayed does not place a patient's immediate health, safety, or well-being at risk, or will, if delayed, not contribute to the worsening of a serious or life-threatening medical condition. So you can see they're really being very specific there. Um, and then Massachusetts has determined that ASCs in Massachusetts uh, must use their clinical judgment on a case-by-case -case basis regarding any invasive procedures that must be done to preserve the patient's life and health. Um, additionally, the guidance defines non-essential elective invasive procedures to mean procedures that are scheduled in advance because the procedure does not involve a medical emergency. However, the ultimate decision is based on clinical judgment by the caring physician. New York has very similar guidance. Um, it identifies, or it asks ASCs to identify procedures that are deemed elective by assessing which procedures can be postponed or canceled based on patient risk, considering the emergency need for redirection of resources to the COVID-19 response. Um, they're also canceling all elective non-critical surgery for hospitals. And then in Ohio, they have determined all, um, all non-essential or elective surgeries and procedures utilizing PPE um, must not be conducted. Non it also describes that non-essential surgery is a procedure that is that can be delayed without undue risk to the current or future health of a patient and notes that healthcare and public health operations shall be construed broadly to avoid any impacts to the delivery of healthcare broadly defined. And in Pennsylvania, um, on March 17th, DOH announced that hospitals um, should review all scheduled elective admissions, surgeries, and procedures and develop a plan to postpone or cancel those admissions, surgeries, and procedures if they are have not done so already. And then on March 19th, uh, Governor Wolf issued a new order prohibiting the operation of all businesses that are not life-sustaining businesses. Um, and this list provides that hospitals and ambulatory care services may continue physical operations, um, but elective procedures are prohibited. And finally, um, Texas, 
which Governor Abbott has released a executive an executive order directing all licensed healthcare yes. professionals and all licensed healthcare facilities to postpone all surgeries and procedures that are not immediately medically necessary to correct a serious medical condition of or to preserve the life of a patient who without immediate performance of the surgery or procedure would be at risk for serious adverse medical consequences or death as determined by the patient's physician. <laughs> Finally can take a breath. <laughs> so a lot of those are very long-winded and they definitely, um, I, I read them out particularly because the um, specific language used within that is, um, is very um, important for each surgery center um, when they're looking at the guidance from their state to determine what is an elective procedure or an urgent procedure, um, depending on their state. And we will post um, the, um, the link uh, when we, uh, uh, on our, our website later on. Alex, your uh, video is on. Okay. And, and, and a lot of that comes from ASCA as well, right. um, from that link. So that'll be where it'll be directed, and it has more. Um, we, we stuck mostly with the, the bigger states there. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, hang on, sorry. So let's uh, go and move on to talk about deciding to close or not. I, I do want to reiterate our voice, our, our uh, advice at this point is that we still feel that the physicians are responsible for defining what are essential or non-elective services. Uh, and this should be done using the board meeting template and forms that we've provided for each case. Recognize, however, that there are probably going to be lawsuits later that will call into question your decision. So be prepared for um, be prepared for it to be able to be prepared to justify your decisions. Um, it is imperative that you have a sound basis for any of those decisions and that you don't make a blanket decision that all of your procedures are essential. And I know our physicians uh, would like to believe that everything that they do is absolutely essential for uh, uh, the patients, meaning that, the, that it needs to be done urgently. It's also important that you maintain a log, as we've talked about before, of all cases that you cancel to show that you are assessing all these cases and that you have some proof behind it. We've provided a, an example log on the action plan. Uh, website at ASCPodcast.com. Uh, we must note, uh, however, that you could be subject to significant legal consequences by staying open. Uh, there are a number of potential penalties that you could be subject to in addition to the lawsuits that we mentioned earlier. And doing cases like routine arthroscopies, diagnostic GI procedures, most plastic surgeries, et cetera, will be somewhat easy to show are non-essential. Um, this is even more uh, of an issue if you have some type of exposure uh, to the center. In other words, if somebody in your center has uh, uh, has tested positive for the coronavirus. And by the way, I believe we have, um, I think we have four centers now uh, that have had individuals that have uh, tested positive for coronavirus. And most of those are, well, actually all of them are on um, uh, quarantine right now. The staff is on quarantine. Laura, do you want to chime in a little bit here on uh, some of the legal consequences of this? Sure. So um, in New York, uh, Section 12 of the public health law provides that there could be severe violations um, if you were to be deemed 
doing elect, uh, elective surgeries. Um, some of the violations carry a civil penalty of up to $2,000 for a first violation uh, with increasing fines on a sliding scale up to $10,000, depending on the nature and the frequency of the violation. Uh, for instance, uh, fines up to $5,000 may be assessed for a second violation within 12 months of the first, so long as the violation constitutes, um, quote, serious threat to the health and safety of an individual or individuals. Uh, it also states right now, again, this is all fluid. We don't know how any of this is going to be enforced at this point in time. A fine up to $10,000 may be levied if the violation, quote, directly results in serious physical harm to any patient or patients. So again, um, some serious consequences here. The AG, the Attorney General's office also can um, obtain injunctive relief, which means they can basically come in and shut you down. And at this point in time, we're not uh, clear as to whether criminal penalties will attach for any violations. Yeah, and uh, I, I, is it fair to say that when they say uh, per instance uh, or per, uh, in other words, it would be for each surgery that you do? Right. So that's a little unclear at this point, whether it's just being open is a violation or each surgery. Uh, we would obviously take the, you know, the approach that it would be each surgery. We wouldn't uh, chance it. Right, exactly. So I, I think what the point we're trying to make here is be very, very careful uh, if you can, well, first of all, if you're doing the, if you're not doing, if you're doing business as usual, and we, there are some centers out there that are continuing to act as though um, this order does not mean anything to them, that they should continue, that they continue to do procedures on individuals as though there is no uh, uh, coronavirus or there's no, um, there's no mandate from the state. And I think you you have quite a bit of legal risk here, uh, moral risk, I think, too, uh, and in your, you're potentially endangering your staff and your patients. And that, we, as we've talked about before, uh, in the situation in which, you know, afterwards, if somebody gets, uh, uh, gets the coronavirus or, or, God forbid, somebody dies as a result of getting the coronavirus in your center, I think that there are some significant uh, legal problems that you might have in the future. Uh, do you agree, Laura? Certainly, certainly. And, and and also just, you know, the obvious that the unknown, right? So we don't know where plaintiff's lawyers will go with any of these things. Right. Except that we know plaintiff's lawyers love to sue <laughs> us. So. Um, and I, I don't say this. I mean, I, I do think we're in solid ground if we're doing truly cases that are uh, that you can really justify are, are done, uh, you know, that, that have to be done urgently in order to protect, you know, the patient. But keep in mind, uh, this decision is not easy. You have to also weigh it given any exposures that your patients might have uh, had or that uh, your staff might have had to people that have been exposed to it. Uh, we're in very uh, interesting ground here. And, of course, we can't cover every state. I had Alex try to, you know, put everything uh, you know, forward from the states, uh, and we could only do the ones that we know we have the largest audience from. Um, but and we will post that on the website. But uh, you do need to double check, keep up with what's going on in your own state. Lori, if um, oh, you are on, uh, Lori. If you can uh, uh, give us kind of a let's talk about those uh, cloth masks for a second. Um, can you hear me, John? I can. I'll just have to boost your sound a little bit. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry, guys. I'm calling from a car. Um, 
I know that there's been a lot of talk about the use of cloth masks and in a lot of um, your um, neighborhoods, your communities, there are actually uh, people that are making them and bringing them to your facilities, the hospitals, to the healthcare workers, which is a, a wonderful, um, you know, offering of their support to all of the um, healthcare providers. However, you got to remember that um, cloth masks really only protect you for uh, a, a nanosecond. Um, you're, you're really exposing yourself and others to uh, potential cross-contamination. You're not, you're not keeping out any of the pathogens. You are uh, breathing and the moisture from your breath is being absorbed into that cloth, which is now making it uh, not in a, not necessarily impervious, but less in, in penetratable. Um, so the, the bottom line is you really shouldn't use cloth masks, especially in the surgical area. Um, and in any situation where you may be exposed to droplets or respiratory type um, uh, offspring, I, I can't think of the right word, but um, you're not going to be protecting yourself and you're certainly not going to be protecting someone else in the event that you are infected and don't know it. So I, if you can stay away from using cloth masks, I really, really encourage you to do so. And Laurie, one of the issues I think that we're seeing out there is that there is, there's advice in, you know, that people are being given, you know, throughout about reusing paper masks, about using these cloth masks. And we have to be very careful. Um, even if it's official advice, it probably is not, uh, it, it doesn't apply to a surgical environment. Yeah, best practice is that you don't want to cause any cross-contamination. Right. And in your surgical arena, that's when the patient is at a very vulnerable time with an open wound, etc. cetera. Um, so if you can avoid reusing any kind of mask, I don't care how well you clean it, um, in the surgical environment, that's my um that's my recommendation. Um, in the uh, clinical area or it, your environmental services, that's a completely different um, beast to look at. Um, but again, it may not protect them. However, your patients um, are uh, need to be protected in their most vulnerable state. Thank you, Lori. Uh, any other comments about infection control at this point? Uh, anything, uh, any observations you've had over the last uh, 72 hours? Um, not, not necessarily. I, I think that, um, I think as a, as a whole, our community, as in the ASC community, is really doing their part when it comes to the screenings um, of patients, the screenings of uh, staff. <laughs> I think that um, it'll, it does become an issue where there are some um, places that are saying if your staff are exposed but don't have symptoms, they can go to work, um, you know, that sort of thing. It's really hard, um, you know, for hospital workers um, because they are on the front lines. They are really needed. I can understand that um, way of thinking, but in our ASCs where I know now we're calling some of our procedures urgent or medically necessary, um, do we really want to risk exposing anyone else if there's a chance that one of our coworkers um, 
could turn positive because they have been um, potentially exposed to someone with the virus. So that that's a lot of internal thought um, and consideration that I think uh, leadership and governing bodies need to uh, come to a, a the unanimous decision for each individual center. Thank you. <clears throat> By the way, I just want to remind our listeners that there are many ways that you can ask questions here. Uh, one is you can call in. If you wish to call in, please text uh, within the app first on uh, Podbean Live. Um, if you, uh, Unfortunately, there is no mechanism for our listeners on, um, on YouTube Live. Uh, I'm sorry. On YouTube Live, there's no way that you can call in, but you can text, uh, or I'm sorry, you can put a message into the uh, uh, the comments there in the chat. Uh, and you can also email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. We're monitoring all those channels. And if you're one of our clients and just have a question for any of our, uh, for us, uh, just email your regular contact and we'd be glad to answer it. So um, I know this next area is probably going to have a lot of questions uh, and uh, I did want to introduce Laura Spring again. Uh, she is an attorney. Uh, Laura, can you just tell a little bit about yourself and your practice area? Sure. So um, I'm a member of CCB Law in Syracuse, New York. Um, most of our practice revolves around um, healthcare clients. I do uh, employment law and litigation. And um, so it's been an interesting week. <laughs> <laughs> None of us are getting a lot of sleep right now. I I, right. I I can promise you, even though I've had this puppy this whole weekend long, I, most of the time I was on a phone while I was holding her. She's, uh, she's very patient though. Uh, so we, what we want to talk today about and what our listeners have been asking about is issues around furloughing or laying off employees. And we did mention on Friday's episode that uh, you should be using the term furloughing. I think we put it in our updates and I think it's in the, on the website. Um, and so Laura, can we start by talking about uh, why you want to use a furlough versus laying off? And then we'll get in some more of the granular issues that we have. Sure. So a furlough um, traditionally is that you want to keep the employees employed, but you are asking them to take an unpaid leave. Um, this is, you know, to retain our workforces, right? Because everyone hopes this, we're going to rev back up and we want our employees uh, to come back to work. Um, so the the pros and cons of, of the furlough that employees on furlough can't do any work at all for you. The minute that they do any type of, uh, of work, any type of anything, whether it's you know emails, phone calls, um, you would have to pay them for that work. Uh, obviously, non-exempt employees would be paid at their hourly rate. Now, when you get into um, exempt employees, then you, it gets a little more dangerous because they would be uh, potentially um, allowed their full pay, even if they only worked a couple hours. So you have to keep uh, very diligent um, in terms of not having your workforce work and keeping them uh, um, as employees. Now, a couple things that go um, as opposed to a layoff, and we could talk about that also. Obviously, a layoff is someone is terminated from their employment, and they could then collect unemployment, um, but then they would be subject to being rehired. And what goes along with that in terms of medical practices, it's not always that simple. You have credentialing and other things that you have to, to look at. 
Um, however, um, you know, the collection of unemployment is going to be important to some employees. And um, so you sort of have to look at the cost benefit analysis and also look at the needs of your employees. They may be perhaps more appreciative to be laid off rather than furloughed because of them being able to collect unemployment. Um, the other piece is, you know, benefits. You can uh, continue benefits under either scenario. Obviously, under layoffs, they would be subject to COBRA, um, but on furlough, you would continue to pay benefits as if they were employed. Uh, so I want to clarify, uh, did, did you say that if they're on furlough, they're not eligible for unemployment? Correct. That's my understanding in some of the states. Now, in New York, that's not so clear. Okay. We tell them, apply for unemployment. Because, again, if you're not collecting any income under un unemployment, you should collect unemployment. Okay? okay? But there's always the questions of whether you're, quote, unquote, employed. The test is really if you're collecting any income. So that's why it's very important that employers are careful not to allow the furlough employee to collect any type of income. Okay. All right. So I just want to clarify that, that you would be entitled to the unemployment if you're not collecting any income. Okay. But, but it's dangerous. Or doing any furlough. work. Yeah. Right. Or doing any right. work that would make you eligible. Correct. Right. Correct. So again, reiterating that is that generally if you furlough somebody, you are eligible, uh, in, in most states, and again, you're going to have to check your state, but in most states, you're going to be eligible for unemployment, assuming that there is no revenue stream at all. Uh, or right. there's and, no as, and assuming assuming they relax some of the other rules, like, are you looking for work? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good point. And, and that's why things get a little gray. Yeah. You know, you, you know. But on a furlough, though, the employer is still paying for the health insurance and that type of thing? Correct. Okay. So we do have a question. Uh, what about PTO uh, before unemployment applies? I think what they're referring to is what happens if uh, the person has PTO that they have not used yet. Right. So if you have accrued PTO and your policy is that um, they would, would collect their PTO, they'd be owed their PTO time at the end of their employment. So, but so, can they, I think they're wondering. Um, if they're furloughed, if you know they're coming back, would they have to use that PTO? I, I wonder if that's what they're asking. So if they would like to be paid, right, mm -hmm. then they could use their PTO and then the, then the furlough uh, would continue. Okay, but they could possibly save it until they come back? Or doesn't that work with a furlough? Well, that gets dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because then you have a furloughed employee that's going to come back and take paid time off, which you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So generally, I think what you're saying is that if they are on furlough, they're going to have to use their PTO first before. We would, we would always run anything concurrently. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and another question, if furloughed, when we tell them the date they come back, do they have to come back that date? And then she also adds, can furlough use PTO? So maybe that's, that's what she's getting at. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you put people on furlough and you say come back to work on this date, they should come back to work on that date. Mm -hmm. um, unless there's some other 
you know, scenario um, that would allow them to, to stay out. Yeah. And I guess that does get tricky because meanwhile, you've been paying all of their benefits. If they choose Correct. not to come back, you've Correct. Right. lost. But. Yeah. There are some risks here, of course. Uh, do we have any other questions? Thank you for uh, all the questions that we're getting. I'm trying to look at all the feeds here. I don't see anything else. Laura, the next questions that we have um, had to do with, uh, well, do you have anything else to say about unemployment and the eligibility for unemployment in general? Um, not really. I mean, unemployment is pretty straightforward. You know, you, I mean, right now, depending on the state, I would just uh, recommend that, you know, people have to be patient. Um, in New York, they have waived the seven-day waiting period for unemployment. They do have some requirements um, and how to apply online depending on your, you know, the alphabet, what day you should go online because of the, the computers crashing. But it's pretty straightforward. Okay, we do have another question about the the furlough. Um, three says so you can you can require an employee to use their PTO before the furlough. Doesn't PTO belong to the employee, and they have the right to choose when they use it? But can't they can't be required to use it when an employee mandates? Let me let me make sense? sure I understand. The, the The question is whether the PTO belongs to the employee, and the employer can't mandate when they can take it. Is that the I, question? I think she's saying, like, yes. If you say we're going to furlough you for a month, then maybe, what? and the employee had wanted to save their PTO. Um, Right. Well, they don't have that option necessarily okay, right. because you're allowed to run benefit, any type of benefit like, uh, you know, FMLA, mm -hmm. PTO, you're allowed to run it concurrently. So it, it really is the employer and we do recommend or you right. recommend that the employer uh, do pay out the PTO prior to their uh, or as part mm -hmm. concurrently with it's, the furlough. Concurrently, concurrently. So again, I mean, hopefully employers have employee handbooks that this is spelled out. I mean, this, this, these issues really haven't changed in normal, right. um, you know, FMLA, ADA, paid time off all run, should be running concurrently. So employers don't run into that issue of somebody going out and coming back and then taking um, additional leave. Right. The only time like in New York, you can't run something concurrently is with, and, and we'll get into this a little bit, is with paid family leave. Okay. Um, because paid family leave does not, um, it's not for your own serious health condition. You're taking leave for somebody else's health condition. So technically there is a, you could, you could run like an FMLA and then a paid family leave, but it gets a little complicated and you know, we can help people out them through those issues. But right now, I don't think we're going to necessarily have um, those issues because of New York State has allowed um, uh, employees to go right to paid family leave in this situation. Okay. And I'm this, I may be asking the same question again, but I'm, so if they apply for unemployment, but they're also getting their PTO paid out, is that you can still get unemployment even though you're getting that payment from the PTO or do you have to use up all your PTO before the unemployment payments will kick in? No, normally, normally when you're terminated, you can mm -hmm. apply right away for mm -hmm. 
unemployment because the PTO is owed to you. Okay. It's not an additional, it's not like a severance pay. It's if it was considered. a severance pay, okay. right, yeah. you'd have yeah. to you'd have to wait for that to be completed, those severance payments until you apply for unemployment. All right. Are you, you are you concerned that I'm going to lay you no. off? <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's what people are getting, you know, because you no, think of you're saving it because once you question. get back from this craziness, yeah. you know, you don't want to have right. everything. Now, now having, having said all of this, we have to look, you have to look at the specific um, uh, paid, uh, paid family leave and paid, I'm sorry, paid sick leave under the federal law that was just passed and under New York because they don't want to take away people's paid time off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so they're giving you some paid time off in addition to the paid time off you have already. But right. that doesn't apply to what we were just talking about with unemployment. This is just if you're employed. Okay, so so we can jump to that if if you yeah, want. Yeah, why don't question. you go for that? And I before we even get into that, uh, because I, I this is ex I mean we're starting to get into some real legal issues and of course mm -hmm. state specific issues. We do uh, really need to recommend that you get an uh, get a you know get your attorney involved in this. We're trying to give you some. Uh, like an overview, uh, an overview yeah. and quick answers. But for your own specific circumstances, you really need to uh, take the advice of your attorney. And I'm hoping that at least after uh, this conversation with uh, with Laura, um, you'll be able to ask uh, intelligent questions of your lawyer and perhaps uh, get right to the point. Go ahead, Laura. Why don't you talk about the the next subject? Right. So, so I know it's, um, and I apologize because this is very fluid um, information, and everybody's trying to figure it out as we go along. So. So, you know, it, it is a little confusing. Um, we have, up, I think, John, you've put on your site our link. Um, so some of these issues you can go right onto uh, our blog posts. We haven't oh. yet, but it will be up later tonight. Yes. Good. Okay. So, so let's just talk a little bit about um, what New York State and the federal government has, has done to provide leave to employees affected by um, coronavirus. Um, so <clears throat> New York has paid time plan, which is effective on March 18th. So it's in effect. And basically, New York's paid sick time plan um, is, uh, is divided up depending on the amount of employees you have. So I can, again, be up on, uh, we'll, we'll link to this. But basically, if you have... Um, 10 or fewer employees and less than a million dollars in revenue. And what do you mean by revenue, by the way, net income or uh, gross revenue? Gross revenue in the previous tax year. Got it. Okay. So um, you would be entitled, your employees would be entitled to unpaid sick leave until the termination of the mandate. Okay. Um, and job protection for the duration of the mandate. I say mandate that is, you know, the quarantine order. Um, so if people, you know, right now, if you're not essential, you're at home, this would apply. Correct. Um, so then after, um, there also would be um, the New York paid family leave and disability policies would kick in. So now you have to separate employees that are actually sick as opposed to employees that are just not allowed to come into work. 
So that's the first level and it just goes up from there. If you have, you know, 10 or more, uh, 11 through 99 employees and they get at least five sick days paid sick leave, paid sick leave and unpaid leave until the mandate is, is over or the period of quarantine um, if, if you're being quarantined. And then you would be able to go to paid family leave and disability policies. There are caps on the amounts for the, the paid family leave. It's um, $2,884.62 per week. Okay, so you get an idea. Um, and then you go to employers with 100 or more employees, and they, um, the employees are entitled to 14 days of paid sick leave. And this um, applies to public employers as well. Okay, they again, we're talking about, these are the federal rules we're talking about here too. Yeah, so, so this is just New York. So this is just New York. And you jump to the federal government, which is the First Families Coronavirus Act. Um, so this has not taken effect yet. It takes effect on April 2nd. And this is a little more involved. And again, we recommend people go to the link um, because it, it's there's six uh, different um, areas that you can uh, be um, that it would apply. And this is where we get into, you know, if, if your child's school is shut down and you have to stay home. So there, there's there's um, a lot of um, qualified employees here. Yeah. Um, and that and that would. That act does not apply to employers that have 500 or more employees. We are, um, so, so generally the employee isn't eligible for up to 80 hours of leave. So that would be 10 days. And um, it goes, you know, again, there's caps on that uh, per day. Uh, $511 per day with a cap of $5,110 in aggregate over that two-week period. Um, there's different amounts, lower amounts if you're home because your child's uh, school is closed down. Um, but again, this this is all, it starts getting sort of technical, so we yeah. would get get to the, the link. But but the important part is, is there are, um, you know, there are some federal guidelines now to try and bridge this gap um between you know people just being sent home whether you're being quarantined whether you're uh asked to work from home um you know the different scenarios that are taking place so we've had uh, two questions here and let's uh, we are getting very granular of course and i'm sure that we've already lost some of our our people and we'll post these links which will be a lot easier for you to read and again cons consult with your attorney um, I, so let me ask these two questions, then I have an overall question. If our center is closed and staff are using PTO but have not yet been furloughed, are they eligible for these benefits? Once furloughed, are they not eligible? And I'm assuming so just if they're, Yeah, if they're employees, they are eligible. And, and, and if, if they're furloughed, they're considered employees. Correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And this is this is where it's going to get a little sticky, right? Yeah. Because we certainly certainly employers going to have to make some very uh hard decisions right now. Yeah. We also have a second question which is somewhat similar are furloughed employees entitled to apply for any of these governmental pay benefits. And I think what you're saying is that 
uh, they have to be uh, furloughed in order to be able to do the, the benefits you were just talking about furloughed with paid sick out. leave and FMLA. Right. So remember, the first piece of it is the employer's responsibility. Then obviously, like in New York, the paid family leave would be that's what's been taken out of your paycheck every week. Um, then that would kick in. But anything um, initial would be paid by the employer. So when we send them home furloughed, which level of benefit do they apply for? I, I don't know if I understand that question. Yeah, I don't understand that question. And I guess they would go to unemployment and they would steer them in the right Right. Well, so right. Go for it. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Laura. So again, um, this is this is looking at at specifically if you're if you're working, right? And so you you have not been terminated, right? And the paid sick leave is until you know an order of quarantine or isolation is is over. So you have to look. You know, I think I think we're framing the question a little differently mm -hmm. because I think people want to know. You know, they're asking about being furloughed, whereas you know people are not working, but their benefits are continuing. So these would apply to them as opposed to being laid off, where you would not be, be able to for apply for right. these benefits. So I guess my question is, obviously, there's some significant financial ramifications for this. And keep in mind, all of our all of the centers that are listening um, are are most likely uh you know, between uh, uh, 10 and uh, 100 employees, and right. probably more than half of them are less than 50 employees indeed. Uh, so what, what, you know, what are the financial ramifications of these, uh, these decisions and what types of things should we be looking at? I mean, we, we don't have a lot of resources to be able to, uh, you know, pay, um, pay out when we uh, furlough people. So what, what types of responsibilities do you think we're going to have? financially well that yeah well that's that's really the hard the hard question because yeah. if if you're going to have the economic obligation to continue benefits or pay out any benefit as opposed to laying people off where you would not have that responsibility that's really where you have to make the you know the, top the judgment call yeah and again if you are furloughing employees their benefits would continue if you lay them off you have a choice to continue the benefits or the uh i should say the um correct um uh health benefits correct uh, correct okay. but they would be entitled to cobra nonetheless but correct. um you may choose to um help them out help yeah. them out a little bit yeah are there any other questions from our listeners I will go on to another question that was not uh, related. Uh, thank you very much, by the way. We're going to bring you back in a second here. We did have a question that came in before uh, the section. If an ASC has been used to hold and care for COVID-19 patients, how is the air handling system decontaminated prior to return to use as an ASC? One of our partners asked me that this weekend. So um, uh, this uh, probably is a Lori question because she's such an expert on life safety and HVAC systems. Yeah, well, <laughs> I would defer that to our life safety expert who's not on the call. So <laughs> I, I imagine um, 
that would be something for one of those um, inspector type people to answer. But my guess is if if we are taking care of uh, known or probably uh, COVID-19 patients or, or potentially infected patients, we might want to consider um, prior to bringing in a, a new batch of healthy people, once this is through, maybe changing out all your filters. But again, I, that I would defer to someone that's really in the know, uh, you know, a, um, yeah. a ventilation expert. But that would be my first thought would be all the filters would need to get changed. I would agree. Yes. Uh, and a thorough cleaning of the facility, which I think is what you said, using one of the professional companies that knows how to clean for COVID-19. And we Right. But, but specific to your ventilation I right. don't know that you would have a cleaning company. You would have to have a uh, an HVAC system. Right. The two things. You got to clean the place and then clean the filters that have been uh, contaminated Correct. from the uh, the COVID. <clears throat> and yeah. we have another question from the same person. Um, he said, "I have been asked if I would lend two anesthesia machines to a hospital. We would prefer not to do this until it is a mandate. Is this a reasonable response?" Well, I, I believe Jen is going to um, address that. Uh, regarding ventilators, but mm-hmm. I mean, a- any request is reasonable. Yeah. Um, it's just whether or not they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, or or if the government's going to mandate giving yeah. it over, which I believe exactly. is a New York, gotcha. New York Cuomo said that it was like required, but I haven't seen the actual writing of the requirement for uh, licensed facilities to um to give their ventilators to people or to mm-hmm. hospitals um in any of his executive orders so i'm not sure where exactly that um how exactly they're enforcing that mm-hmm. um but we have we, we are recommending that especially if you're shut down yeah and, um, and you're not so using them because in new york the wording the the way he said it is if you're not using it, um, if you have it just sitting around, mm-hmm. then that's when we want it. Yeah. Um, so. And why I don't you talk look, about the national side too? Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. did look up um, the um, anesthesia patient safety foundation um, has put out a statement about uh, ventilators during the COVID crisis. And what they said is ICU ventilator shortages are expected to be a problem if the number of infected with ventilator, ventilator, I can't talk now, failure exceeds the supply of the ventilators. Using anesthesia machines as an ICU ventilator is considered an off-label use, but certainly should be considered as a life-saving intervention. Each institution will need to determine how best to logistically use the anesthesia machines for long-term mechanical ventilation, existing procedures for ICU ventilators for long-term humidification and replacement of filters and breathing circuits should be applied to the um, extent possible. Anesthesia professionals should be involved with with modifying procedures and helping to manage the use of the device. At the time of this writing, manufacturers are expected to provide uh, additional guidance on the topic. So I would look to see if your manufacturer of your anesthesia machine has released that guidance. Um, The FDA also put out a statement about ventilators and they said, you know, 
this is more of like a last resort type of situation. Um, but it says, you know, if the number of ventilators in your facility is running low, consider alternatives. Um, healthcare providers should use their judgment based on the condition of the patient and the uh, circumstance in the facility to choose the best option for a patient needing ventilator. Oh, I can't say that word today. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Anesthesia gas machines are capable of providing ventilation or assisted ventilation, may be used outside of um, the traditional use of anesthetic indication because of significant differences between the anesthesia gas machine and traditional critical care ventilators, use or supervision by an anesthesia provider is recommended. And then again, it says refer to the manufacturer for specific, inju specific instructions for use. Can I interject? Um, Please. I think, I think that um, if we, if, uh, if our ASCs do um, lend out their anesthesia machines um, to the area hospitals to assist in this, I would implore you that when you get them back, um, that you have the company rep come in and do a thorough cleaning replacement of all um, the parts that could be affected through this process, especially um, any of the breathing, breathing apparatus, filters, et cetera, uh, when you get them back. And at that point, you know, I don't know where the charges would go. It doesn't matter, but I would not, I personally would not take the machine back from the hospital with the hospitals telling me that it's been taken yeah. care of. I would want to make sure that my people are taking care of those machines so I know it was done. And like actually, that. I would argue that that is the requirement from a CMS standpoint is that you 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 can't trust anything that, uh, well, I mean, that's true for any equipment that comes into the place is that you're the one that has to do the biomed checks. You're the one that has to, you're the one that's taking the responsibility for the, uh, um, to, for that machine and its functionality. Yep. Good, good point. Thank you. So, and in, if you're in New York State, the governor um, said, if you are a regulated health facility, we're asking you by order of the Department of Health to make that ventilator available. And there's a specific person you were supposed to call. Her name is Rachel Baker, and her number is 518-281-5120. Um, if that's something outside of New York State, um, if that's something that you're interested in doing, I would definitely reach out to either the Department of Health or um, your local hospitals. I know some people have been told they aren't, you know, the, been told by the local hospitals, thanks, but no thanks. Um, that might change as, you know, the demand for ventilators grows. But, um, you know, if you're not using it, it's something to consider. And in New York State, like I said, they're basically saying um, you have to if, if you're not using it. Thank you. Okay, thanks. And we do have another question for Laura. Um, somebody on YouTube wrote in, can we pay employees half time while being furloughed, even though they are mostly at home? No. Yeah, that okay. th that actually violates what we talked about earlier. That um, y y they they can't uh, can't work for can't you while they're furloughed. Right. That, right, that's right. Correct. Laura, on our morning call, uh, you. Well, I I'm sorry. I think it was you that brought up the question of uh, reviewing all of your contracts to determine if you're obligated under any of the, the contracts or services uh, when there's no volume. Can you talk about that a little bit? This is very very important. I think. Sure. So. Um, 
you know, again, we'll we'll send a link to you because we'll have a, a blog post on our on our website regarding this. Um, again, you know, like other things in the law, there's a lot of gray area here. Um, this is probably unprecedented time um, for this issue to come up in contracts. If there is a um, what we call a, a, a clause that are sometimes included in uh, contracts called force majeure, which basically means that, you know, when something is, um, cannot be performed, um, that the contract will somehow, um, the, the, the performance under the contract would be excused. Okay, so certain employment contracts and certain contracts, I'm sure there's employers out there with hospital contracts or other type of vendor contracts, that whether or not um, this would excuse performance under those contracts, whether those contracts can be terminated. Um, if there is not a provision in the contract, we would then look to common law to determine whether or not something is um, impossible or difficult to perform, um, or whether or not there's what we call a frustration of purpose. So again, it gets, it gets somewhat technical and, and bogged down in legal jargon, but bottom line is um, we believe that, you know, most of the contracts out there are not going to have language that talks about an epidemic, um, and so we're going to be looking at uh, common law to determine whether something is, can be performed or not, and, and it really is going to look at, you know, the standard being an unforeseen event that severely undermines the original purpose for entering into the contract, right? So they'll, they'll like I said in the in the link, you'll see um, the different scenarios where you could probably argue that the purpose of the of the contract can't be performed, and whether or not um, you know it's it's probably impracticable so there would be a basic assumption that employment agreements that ASCs or hospitals would remain operational during the entirety of the agreement you know that that's really what we're looking at I, I think uh, just to kind of uh, put it in a nutshell is that all of those provisions that we always ignored in the back of our contracts about what would happen if something major happened are those things that we're going to actually have to read now uh, right in New York they're, they're narrow in, yeah. They're very strict in, in interpreting those in New York. So, okay. so, uh, so this is the time to review those contracts carefully, if especially if you wish to stop paying on them, uh, or if you have to stop paying on them and recognize that you could have some legal obligations. So, uh, time to dig those contracts out and uh, start considering what uh, the ramifications of uh, of that are. I don't think that's a question. I think she just wanted to clarify because yeah. somebody had mentioned that earlier it seemed that you said that an employee can be furloughed and an employee okay, so an employee cannot work unless you pay them for that time only. So if they're furloughed, you can pay them for like a part time. But but then they could potentially lose their unemployment they can't, insurance. Yeah. Correct. So yeah. they Correct. either are working part time. Challenge, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's that's the challenge. Um yeah. if if you furlough them and then they do work and you pay them, they're going to lose uh, the potential for unemployment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes you can get <clears throat> partial unemployment, but I think then it just gets very, very confusing, very especially right now. There's 
the system's going to be overrun. I almost just wouldn't. Yeah. Right. Actually, that's a question. I don't know if any of our lists, I don't know if anybody has had any experience in trying to uh, to apply for unemployment. How how difficult is it, at least in some of the states that we're, uh, we're representing here? Anybody know? Okay. Uh, <laughs> not surprised. Um, did, do we get all the questions? I think we did. I think we did. Okay. Yep. Uh, so moving on. Thank you, Laura. Um, I do want to remind uh, our listeners of the importance of going to our website. Uh, it has not been updated since Friday, so I do have to make some changes tonight based on what we've been talking oh, about today. Uh, and also on our website is the morning update, which does have some of the links that Laura had uh, was discussing here. Uh, please, the other thing that would be helpful for us um, is we're going to probably go to every other day with uh, um uh, with live podcasts. Uh, in the meantime, if you can email us questions that definitely, or, or types of things that you uh, might want us to talk about, we would be glad to uh, find the right person. We are actually looking into uh, bringing Nelson Gomes on. I'm, I missed him today uh, to talk about some of the uh, the the uh, the issues with regard to computer systems because there's issues with regard to computer systems during this time. Um, so uh, we might have him on, and uh, I might. Fortunately for poor Laura, I probably have to bring her back like constantly for this. So, uh, because I think that the legal issues are going to be uh, uh, quite ongoing. So, do visit our website at ASCPodcast.com and follow the links for the action plan. Uh, do it periodically. I will try to update it tonight, but probably it won't be all done until later tonight. We have a question for, uh, we have a call in from somebody. Can um, you just verify? Uh, let, let's let her in. Hang on. Yes, uh, Sobin, you are you are on. Sobin, you're on. Can you ask a question? Okay, I will disconnect. Um, let's. Uh, oh, um, Lori, uh, we had this question. Or you brought this issue up about social distancing in the waiting areas, the pre-op and the post-op. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um it, it was funny. I had to go to CVS the other day to pick up a prescription and at the counter at the, um, the pharmacy counter, they set up tables in front of the, the, the real counter to keep people back from the person that's going to be giving them their um, prescription, et cetera. Um, which I found kind of interesting. They also had tape on the floor, you know, first customer, second customers, yeah. they kind of um, spaced it out. And that that's a very good point because most of our centers, our front counter um, is almost kissing distance to our front desk personnel. Um, so it's, you know, we need to think of their safety. So maybe having a safe space for uh, people checking in at your centers um to make sure that there is no, um, you know, they have that social distance. It may not be six feet, obviously, but it, any distance is better than on top of each other. Um, my husband was at a place. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, he found that the center where you were, if you signed in, you had clean pens. When you use that pen, it was deposited into a, a, a bin, which then they got um, you know, sanitized or whatever, uh -huh. so that you weren't reusing pen to pen to pen. So 
you know, you're not touching someone else's, uh, you know, contamination uh, sites, whatnot. Um, in the waiting area, if we could possibly reconfigure the seating or, you know, which is hard, you know, you can't really hide chairs, but if we were to block off every other chair as a do not sit here so that we're providing our um, patients that are waiting or if there are family members in the waiting area, a little bit of space between each other, um, that would be um, a recommended practice. If, if you're in your clinical area, uh, another thing to consider, since I'm sure our numbers are down, let's not put patients in bays right next to each other if you can do every other bay, um, especially those of us that have curtains instead of walls yeah, yeah. between between patients. It's, you know, thing, things like that to consider. Um, making sure that the, the, um, the bays don't have supplies in them out in the open because you know, this is airborne. We don't want um, it resting on our products that we're then going to open for the next patient. So it's, it's kind of thinking like that, um, which is not necessarily social distancing, but it kind of is when it comes to our, our, um, uh, you know, like our IV start kits mm -hmm. or, or something like that, you know, so if we can just bring over the things that we need at the time that we're going to use them, I, I would, you know, look into that possibility. Um, it was interesting today. I was, um, at a facility that has a common lobby and there were people in the lobby that whether they were there for the ASC or for physical therapy or one of the other services within this building that were in the lobby. And, um, you know, part of you would thought that they were social distancing due to the, the loudness of their, um, speaking to each other but they were actually like right on top of each other in the lobby so they weren't practicing social distancing and you know we can't control that but you know anything that we can do to help prevent this spread would be um you know appreciated yeah. i i think is the word i'm looking for you know so you know think about in your center how you can keep people away from each other um and it's to protect them and it's to protect you as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a safety thing. And even nurses at the nurse's station or, or whatnot, you know, we, we really have to think about, you know, that sort of stuff now. So I, hopefully that's helpful. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I do one thing that I wrote to all of our clients this morning uh, and I'll just read it off is during this difficult time, it is important that we remember our moral obligations as healthcare providers and our responsibility to protect the health and the safety of our, of our patients and our staff. It is our position that unless you have a very strong case for the urgency of a procedure, you should curtail operations in those locations where the government has ordered non-essential services to be curtailed. After this is all over, we're going to be evaluated based upon our actions and those organizations that chose to continue their regular operations as though nothing happened will likely suffer a diminished public image as well as possible fines, penalties, and lawsuits. So I, I, I just felt that we just had to put that out there, that we just be very careful out there. You, the, the future, the reputation of the industry um, really hangs on the way that we present ourselves during this time. And there is that perception, I, I feel, sometimes that 
you know, that there are some centers that are just making some decisions that I think are poor because, you know, from a financial standpoint, um, you know, they're, they, they, they do not uh, want to suffer the consequences of shutting down. Now, what's happening in many of those centers, and we've been talking, you know, throughout, you know, the, the weekend with uh, with some of them that are trying to stay open, is that uh, the situation is self uh, is fixing itself uh, as patients start to say, "Wait a minute, I'm not coming in for an elective procedure." Um, so, just try to make good decisions here. I want to talk a little bit about the future and, and what might be happening. You know, I know we've been talking a lot about what to do if you're shutting down, and please listen to previous podcasts if you want some advice as to what to do during those times. But one thing that we have learned is that right now the need in the community for facilities is for very large concentrations of individuals. The government is looking to be able to place hundreds or thousands of people uh, on uh, uh, in, in, a, in a large facility in a, in an area where they can concentrate the employee, the patients, and the uh, um, and uh, uh, the uh, the healthcare workers. So uh, it, it it's not likely that a surgery center is going to be used for that type of care. We do have a call in here. Let me let him in. Hang on one second. Go, Sarah. Well, that didn't work. These call-ins are not working. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, Sarah, you're there. Do you have a question? Sarah, do you have a question? This call-in is not working. Sorry about that. Um, so if you've been thinking that uh, in the long term, your ambulatory surgery center is going to be called upon to do that type of work, I doubt it. However, we could be used for non-emergency uh, room health care. So at some point, where they're probably going to be coming to us and asking for us to take on those cases that we're not able to do, uh, that they're not able to do in the hospital because of all the other demands. So be prepared for that. But in order to be able to do that, you're going to have to... Um, I hear something... I don't know. Sounds like that's from Sarah. Yeah, and I don't know why I can't. I mean, she's not showing on the board. I don't know why. Okay. Um, hopefully that'll go away. Um, and I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to let people on unless they text me beforehand. <laughs> um so, uh, you know, I keep it local, you know, as we talked about uh, this morning on, on the New York State specific contact, uh, uh, issue, uh, contacting your local authorities is, a, is critical at this juncture. Maintaining contact with your hospital uh, is probably the best use of your time. Um, the government has more critical issues to deal with, so reaching out to them about the possible use of your center is probably not going to be very helpful right now. But, you know, use your contacts with the hospital. Uh, to see if there's anything or make sure that they're aware of uh, your existence. We've provided some resources on our website, like example letters that you can send to the hospital, uh, outlining what your uh, capabilities are and, uh, and again, maintaining a good contact with, with them and volunteering to assist in whatever way um, is, is, is likely. So I think we're going to see our, most of our centers uh, shutting down in the interim, but then as things progress, as hospitals uh, get overwhelmed, I think that there are going to be opportunities for reopening. So what is happening, I don't think is a permanent situation. Um, and of course, uh, many of our centers are, are shutting down also. Our, several of our centers are shutting down. Several of our listeners are shutting down because they've had um, a staff member or a physician who has tested positive. So be very careful about that.
and that becomes a, a very difficult issue, I do recommend that you contact the local health department when that happens and ask for their advice. There has been some conversation or discussion about the possibility of using our centers for testing, um, but to be honest with you, the other options are probably much more viable. Uh, we have some centers that are new that have not opened up yet that uh, that might be a good option to at least um, bring some revenue in, though we don't know what that would be uh, during the interim while we're waiting to bring everybody on board. Our listenership has actually gone up rather than down. Um, in the last 10 minutes, probably because I'm just having this wonderful conversation with everybody here. Uh, but uh, so are there any other questions out there? Please uh, put, uh, so if you have a question, um, please input it in your, uh, or put it on the Podbean app, email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com. Uh, put it, if you're on the live uh, stream for YouTube, put it in your comments there or uh, text me and I can, um, and I can uh, let you on to ask the question in person. We do have another question. Go ahead, Sue. Um, she asked, if an employee has tested positive, is the center required to shut down entirely? So this gets um, really difficult. Um, what we are advising is that you contact the local health department for their advice. The problem um, becomes that, you know, you're, you're taking some significant risk at that point. And you have to, I mean, I don't know that there is a government mandate that you shut down. Again, you would follow the advice of your local uh, health care, uh, the, uh, the local health department. Um, but you're taking some significant risk if you continue operations. I happen to know the center that's uh, asking this question and they have had a positive uh, ID. Um, and, uh, um, the problem is that particular provider had seen quite a number of patients uh, prior to um, uh, him being diagnosed. Um, uh, actually, more staff than patients, actually, in this situation. So be very, very careful because, again, you're taking on some risk. If you choose to stay open during that uh, time frame, uh, or you know, during that two weeks that would uh, between when that that uh, that employee or the staff member was last uh, uh, in the center, uh, I think you subse subject yourself to some legal uh, problems. I, I don't know, Lord. I, I know we kind of talked about this before, but sometimes our audience comes in and goes out. Do you want to talk about that again? Uh, me or Laura? Oh, I'm sorry, Laura, not Lori. Did I say? I'm sorry. I meant Laura. <laughs> All about me. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the specific issue is if somebody tests positive in the workplace and obviously being a medical facility, right? Right. Um, you know, I think the, the, the protocols have been you, you contact the Department of Health, the CDC, look for direction. But, you know, I would, I would say, obviously, if, you know, you're, you're, there's an exposure issue, right? So, yeah. Um, quarantine, it looks like that's the answer. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, that's what I was trying to say in my long-winded way, um, is that I think, I, again, um, I don't know that there is a government mandate that you shut down, but you've got a, a moral you know, responsibility here and you probably are subjecting yourself to some significant legal risk if somebody gets infected uh, as a result of that, that, that individual spreading it to another employer, to, your, to, uh, um, to patients. Um, so uh, if we're trying to be risk adverse here, then you probably need to quarantine for 
those 14 days after the last exposure. Yeah, the other thing to consider, John, is that if you have a known exposure in your center and you did not quarantine and one of your employees then passes it on to someone in their family who may have a very negative outcome, then your center's name is going to be um, out there for all the wrong reasons. And yeah. I don't know that, especially right now, that any center can afford bad publicity. That's right. And that's a big theme. Thank you, Laurie, I, because that is a big thing that I have here is that, you know, keep in mind, everything that we're doing right now is going to reflect on what, you know, how this industry is perceived after this is all over with. And uh, it's important that we do the right thing here. I, I know I've said that a lot today, and in, including in my emails today, but uh, I do think uh, it's important um, that we consider our reputation moving forward and do the right thing here. Does anybody else have any other comments? Any other questions? Um, I have a comment, actually. Um, I was in a center today, um, unfortunately, for them performing a survey. And... They have decreased tremendously their, um, the, the caseload, et cetera, and they're multi-specialty and one of their specialties, um, other than like orthopedics and, uh, GI, et cetera, um, they've, they've curtailed their GI, um, procedures, which, you know, that was their decision, which is fine. Now, during the survey, I went into the procedure room and I went into the anesthesia cart with the, um, with the director. And this is not a negative thing, but it's something I think we're all trying to protect and make decisions, et cetera. Well, when I opened their draw, um, they had some medication. By the way, for <laughs> non people that are not from Boston, that's a drawer. Not to, but go ahead, Lori. That's they are so funny. Um, so anyway, they had medications that were going to expire within a week. And I don't even think that we're thinking of that. If we're, if we're streamlining our center and we're going from three rooms to two rooms or to one room, think about the supplies that are in those other rooms so that we're not, we're not uh, incurring more fees and, and things like that. If we can use that product first, then let's yeah. do that. I, you know, it's, it's just something to think about. It's not just what's in our cabinets. It's also what's in our rooms and yeah. in our, um, carts. How's that? You like that? Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a very good point, especially as we start to figure out, you know, what to do with our supplies, um, you know, during any shutdown period. So thank you. Any other, uh, uh, comments from my, uh, my, uh, my staff here or Laura? Um, I just did want to mention one other thing that employers have to think about as well, whether you're going to furlough, layoff, um, is that the health benefits, while it's, you know, we've been talking about continuing the health benefits, health benefits, you need to look at your plans. Um, it's important in terms of, you know, the reduction of hours. If somebody goes from full-time to part-time, whether they still can be covered uh, most of the plans, I think, are are waiving those requirements so they could be able to continue health insurance. Um, but you need to look at your plans, especially if you have a self-insured plan. So just a, another thought. Right. Thank you. A, a very good point. Um, 
I did want to, so we haven't talked at all about what to do if you are shutting down. And we talked about that extensively, I believe on Friday's episode, there's also a lot of information on our ASCpodcast.com website. Uh, so there are a number of steps that you need to do if you are uh, going offline, that you want to be prepared to be able to, to come back full strength uh, when you come back online. And we've given quite a bit of advice. Uh, those of you that are clients of Amateur Healthcare Strategies, trust me, we are already thinking about that and trying to make sure that uh, we can keep you uh, ready to uh, come back on full steam when, when things happen. Uh, we've also mentioned this before. We are planning on some educational programs over the next, I mean, I don't know how long this is going to go on, but I'm just saying kind of a couple months uh, to kind of keep you engaged. Uh, hopefully use this uh, downtime, if we can call it that, uh, for uh, educational purposes. Purposes. So we are, uh, that's actually why we have Studio 2 in the other uh, room there, um, so that we can start doing some uh, nice uh, educational programs. So many conferences have been canceled that uh, we do think that, uh, especially those of you that have uh, needs for uh, CEUs and AEUs and uh, IPCUs, uh, we're going to uh, dedicate ourselves to trying to, uh, to do that. Uh, for you, as well as get you up to speed on infection prevention, which is going to become even more important moving forward, as I'm sure Lori will will attest to. I mean, she's working on some uh, some programs that will help um, you prepare to be an infection control uh, uh, preventionist uh, uh, coordinator, uh, or if you already are one, uh, to uh, have you know to increase your skills there, especially in light of what's going on here and the fact that. Uh, more now than ever, that's going to be a focus of uh, of survey. So stay tuned as we start rolling out those things. Right now, we're still in crisis mode, so that's not uh, on anybody's minds, but I want you to know that it is on our minds. Any other comments from our staff? Any other questions from our audience? Something buzzed. No. Okay. With that, I think we will uh, end this episode. Uh, feel free to send us uh, questions at comments at ASCpodcast.com. Uh, um, join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCpodcast.com. And we, uh, we, we're trying to keep open during this time, and our expenses are going up, and I, I don't ask uh, a lot, and I just hope that some of you will consider becoming a patron of the podcast so that we can continue uh, the work that we're doing here and uh, and giving away all of this uh, information to you and helping you prepare uh, for uh, you know for what's to come. So please do consider going to our, our, our website at ASCpodcast.com and, and becoming a patron. And also spread the word about the podcast to all of your friends and your colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. If you hit that subscribe button, you'll know right away when uh, we're going on air. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judia D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kauritis, Lori Rodericks, Laura Spring. Uh, music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. 
We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, and BHG Funding. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.